The $50 billion IT services contract known as CIOSP4 will finally reach the end of the beginning today. After nearly a year of delays and industry frustrations, the NIH IT Acquisition and Assessment Center, NITAC, will receive best and final offers from contractors. For how NITAC is trying to hear contractors and improve this massive procurement, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with NITAC Deputy Director Ricky Clark. I think first and foremost because of the sheer size of the uh, solicitation itself and what we're asking for. I also think that timing has a lot to do with it. I hate to keep uh, referring back to the uh, post-COVID climate. But that has uh, some input for it as well. But I think it's just the interest that is generated in you know, the uh, the back and forth, the amount of traffic that we receive for the uh, proposal itself. Now, I wouldn't technically call it challenging. I mean, there are, I've been on some acquisitions that have, you know, many twists and turns. So this is, you know, nothing unique in that sense. Yeah, I just think that the visibility for this one is a lot higher than most of that I've dealt with. On one hand, you guys have faced a lot of protests. I think uh, last count I did was, I think, 24 protests, and, and I think you've won 23 of them which is great yes. because obviously it means you guys are down the right path. But on the other hand, that, that adds a lot of complexity, a lot of delays, potentially the latest effort, the latest frustration seemed to come from this portal. Give me a sense of the decision behind, or as much as you can tell me about the, why you went with the portal and then decide not to go with the portal after all. What, what can you tell me about the, this decision process? Well, that's not a lot I can say, Jason, because this is a, an ongoing action. So I will say there would be some additional information available in, in the very uh, very near future. But initially, I think the purpose of the uh, proposal tool was for us to have visibility, transparency, and honestly ensure that all offers are, are treated equitably, equally. So and it was for us to be fast and efficient and a process that, you know, that was traceable. So it would allow us an opportunity to go back, you know, take a look at some things, make sure that we're fair across the board as well as, doing our checks and balances to make sure the process is as clean as as efficient as it needs to be. And when I talk to industry, I know there was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of folks who told me, well, you could start, but then you can't save. And then mm-hmm. it would lose your work or the the data, the uploading of data. And it was just, it just seemed like it, portal got maybe a little bit ahead of itself. What made you decide, okay, we're going to take a full step back and you know, with the last amendment that you all put out maybe a week and a half ago now, it said you don't need to use the portal. And if you if you're not changing your bid from August, you can just resubmit that bid with some updated. What made you take that that step back from the portal and rethink about what the best and final offers are, are going to look like? Honestly, Jason, it was us being responsive to industry. We received firsthand some of the feedback from the uh, from the offers via email. We read the press. <laughs> You know, we, we kind of get a feel for what industry is going through. And our entire purpose was for us to be uh, responsive to industry. So let me say this. NITAC, our objective is for us to provide a, a mechanism for governments to have a, a quick, fast, and efficient way to uh, order IT services and equipment. Now, we want to do that in an unsurpassed uh, approach to customer service. So if you're hearing all this chatter outside, then we are not immune. I mean, it's not in a vacuum. So we're listening because our objective is to partner with industry. Our objective is to partner with our offers. So if they have a concern, the next concern has to be our concern. So in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is that we heard the chatter. We we felt the pain because we were going through the exact same thing. It's not just uh, uh, them and us, it's, it's we for us. So for us, uh, seeing the uh, difficulties, seeing some of the technical challenges that were being experienced, and we had to take a step in the right direction to uh, make things easier for our offers. I think people appreciate that, though, that 
added to the frustration because folks were working on their bids. They spent hours and hours working on the portal. Then all of a sudden you all said, okay, don't use the portal anymore. So I think there's a feeling that it was good that you made that decision, but you could have made it <laughs> two weeks before, three weeks before, never used it in the first place. So I think, I think, you know, the frustration of industry on this, that's why I said at the beginning, I think there's a lot of, a lot of consternation over this procurement because of some of the, uh, this, I guess, decisions NITAC made. How often are you in contact with industry, not necessarily one-on-ones, but, but, but do you, are you having, how do you get their feedback? How do you take their feedback and understand what they're asking for? Help me understand your process to listen to industry. Uh, when it comes to uh, specifically uh, the, the solicitation itself, uh, we, we always listen. We've been listening the entire time. We have a mailbox where they, you know, it's the uh, CIO SP4 mailbox where people would, you know, send emails. Uh, we try to be responsive to the emails where we can. That's, you know, it's not violating some of the uh, solicitation uh, guidelines. Um, and throughout each amendment, honestly, each amendment that we've had, and protest sometimes can be considered a bad thing, but for us, I think we take it as a, a learning experience. So every amendment that we've had, and there were a number of them, we uh, took a look at it. We went back, we have a team, an entire team, and we, we you know, do a 360 assessment of what does this mean? How can we improve it? And then you know, what, what does this mean for industry? And how can, we, how can we be clear? So every time we had an amendment, that was the exact approach that we took. So we're always listening. We're always trying to be uh, uh, responsive. Let's talk about the timeline as much as you can and, and the plans to maybe extend CIOSP3. When I was doing my research, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think CIOSP3, their end, the end date is, is May of this year. There are various, uh, because of the ramp on, there are different uh, period of populations, different exp- expiration days for each vehicle. So it starts in May and it runs through uh, October 31st. So uh, to be more specific, uh, the unrestricted contract CIOSP3 had terms on the 31st of May. Uh, the small business contract terms, I think it's uh, July 14th. Uh, the 8A contract terms, uh, 629 of 2022. The SDVSOB, Service Disarmament Veterans on Small Business terms, uh, April 29th. And I'm missing one. Oh, the Hub Zone. Hub Zone terms are October 31st. So what we're doing is actually extending these uh, vehicles for up to a year. Initially, we're setting all of the uh, period of populations for November 1st. That's when we expect to have the SP4 award in place. All right. So just to be clear on that, all the contracts will be extended for up to a year, at least through November 1st or up to a year with November 1st being when you hope to have SP4 awards in place. We hope to have SP4 in place by November 1st. That is our anticipated award date. And the other contracts, the current SP3 will be in place for at least uh, at least a year. At least nope. through uh, November 1st. Obviously, you have that option to extend again if need be. If yes. We'll, you will cross that bridge as you get to it. And, and then from a ceiling perspective on SP3, any concerns about it reaching its ceiling or is there plenty of leeway in there? There's plenty of leeway for all the vehicles. So all small business vehicles as well as the SP3 unrestricted. So that was something that we reviewed uh, prior to uh, making a decision to extend it. So that was part of our process. So, yes, plenty of ceiling for each. Has those extensions been sent out due to the folks on SB3 already know the extensions are happening or is this something that's happening? You're doing it. You're in process of sending the, it out. It is a working process now. So we're going through the approval process internally, but we'll have them out um, in enough time uh, for the first vehicle expires. So. What is your message to the vendor community who are bidding on this, who are frustrated by the process, who say, 
you know, and, and I've heard this time and again, you know, maybe NYCHAC should just throw in the towel and start over. This has been a, a problem from the beginning. I mean, whether or not you agree with that, that's a whole separate story, but their perception <laughs> or their feeling is that this was not a good procurement, that this did not get run well. This was very frustrating. What's your message to industry? I would say that uh, from a NYTAC standpoint, we're always trying to be responsive to industry. If you based it on the number of protests that we've had and the outcome of those protests, there, there's some validity to uh, how the solicitation was put together. So my message would be um, for our offers to be patient. I am confident that the final product that we receive would be one that we'll all be very proud of. I think that uh, some of the consternation is not unwarranted. But I think that because of uh, the, the sheer scope of this requirement, um, it is a work in progress. Some of these things we have to work through to uh, get to the final product. I am very, very confident that you know the final product will be something that's you know notable, something we can all look back on and be be very proud on. Ricky Clark, Deputy Director of NITAC, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 